when I got out of the Navy back in 1996, I worked with a, a recruiting firm, more commonly referred to as a headhunter, to help me find my next gig. I had been a, a supplier officer in the Navy, and so most of the recruiter's focus was in the area of logistics and supply chain management. I was eventually hired by a, a consulting firm, which was a wonderful place to work. That was the job that brought me back to Dallas, which I was very excited about. It's the firm where I met my wife, Whitney. But before all of, all of that, the recruiter that I was working with uh, cast a pretty wide net as I began my job search. Uh, there were a couple of possibilities that were outside of logistics per se. And the recruiter uh, arranged one interview in particular that surprised me. Uh, there was a, a manufacturing firm in central Indiana that was looking for a supervisor for their maintenance department. Uh, now, if you're looking for a handyman uh, or really someone who is mechanically inclined in any way at all, I am not your guy. <laughs> But this was not so much uh, a mechanical job as it was a management and leadership role, and the Navy had certainly prepared me well for that, you know, budgeting, operations, personnel management, that sort of thing. Personally, I felt like this position was a bit of a stretch, uh, but it was one of the first interviews I was going to do. In fact, it may have been the first interview I did after I got out of the Navy, and I needed the practice. I had not interviewed for a job in a long time. So I drove uh, an hour and a half from my parents' house in Indianapolis to this manufacturing facility in the middle of a cornfield. And the interview was going pretty well. Actually, the facility manager was very friendly. He was impressed with my uh, Navy resume, which I appreciated. He seemed to resonate with the questions I was giving about um, his, uh, to the answers I was giving to his questions about leadership and management. But I was gonna be leading a, a maintenance department after all. And so he asked me what I'm sure he thought was a very straightforward question, uh, a question that may in fact be a very straightforward one for y'all as well, uh, it went something like this. Uh, what is, what's the function of oil in an engine? Uh, what happens when it starts to get old? And why is it important to change it frequently? Now, when one of the warning lights comes on in one of our vehicles at home, uh, I have one go-to move. Uh, <laughs> if I can find the latch to open the hood, which is trickier than it sounds on some vehicles, I can get the hood open, I can prop the hood open, and I can verify that in fact the engine is still in place. <laughs> I can even, in a pinch, use jumper cables if I have to, uh, assuming that the little laminated instruction sheet is still attached. The whole positive and negative thing, I can't do that from memory. Uh, but beyond that, I am taking it to the dealership. And so uh, when this potential employer asked me something to the effect of, uh, what's the function of, an of oil in an engine? What, what happens if it starts to get old and why is it important to change it frequently? Uh, I knew at that point that the interview was doomed. I have no idea how uh, it ended. Uh, I have no idea what I said, but I do remember that our time together did come to a close shortly after that question was asked. And as I was driving back to India, Indianapolis, I, I called the recruiter and I told her, you know, we should probably not, not cast the net quite so wide <laughs> in this job search. Now, whether or not car maintenance is your thing, whether or not you're thinking, oh my gosh, he doesn't know what oil does in an engine. I mean, I, I figured it out eventually. It just took me a while to get there. I'm guessing all of us have a subject like that, a subject that's, that's probably important to know, um, or at least helpful to know, 
but that's a bit of a mystery or a bit confusing or maybe even a subject that's a little intimidating for whatever reason. And I actually think that the Bible is like that uh, for a lot of people, or at least certain parts of the Bible are like that. For people, it certainly was for me for a while. I mean, as, as Christians, we know that it's the central book of our faith. Uh, we may have people in our lives who can, seemably, uh, can uh, seemingly like quote scripture off the top of their head for lots of various uh, subjects that may intimidate us if, we're not, if we don't have that kind of memory. But when we try to, to study it, and I mean truly study it, like read it, uh, even a book or let alone the entire thing from start to finish, it can sometimes seem overwhelming. It can be confusing in some places. And then, I mean, let's face it, there are some parts of the Bible that are troubling or challenging or quirky or just downright weird. And we can find ourselves asking how exactly these passages are relevant to our faith journeys. So today, we're beginning a new sermon series called, I'm sorry, what? And we're going to be reading uh, some of the troubling, challenging, quirky, weird passages in the Bible. And we're going to be talking about how we, in the Methodist tradition, read this most central book of our faith. We'll be exploring how it is that we make sense of, uh, what do we do with the stories or verses that puzzle us or that we find unsettling in some way. And to begin, we're going to talk about the role of the Bible uh, in our Methodist tradition. So the founder of Methodism, John Wesley, was a biblical scholar uh, for whom the Bible was always the starting place of theological reflection. It was always his starting point. But it was not the only point, uh, and it was not necessarily the ending point on some subjects. But the Bible is the foundation of our theology. In our Methodist tradition, we believe that our theology, the way we express it, is revealed in Scripture. We also believe that our theology is uh, illumined by tradition. Illumined is the word that we use in our book of discipline. That means that, that we make sense of what we read in the Bible through the lens of almost 2,000 years of Christian tradition. And for uh, Methodists in particular, that tradition is shaped by and focused on God's grace. This concept of grace, which is the unmerited, unearned, unearnable and unconditional love of God. In our tradition, it's one of the things I love most about being a Methodist. The Christian journey begins with grace, it ends with grace, and it is uh, marked and guided by grace at every point along the way. Having been revealed in Scripture and illumined by tradition, uh, we also believe that our theology is tested by reason. This was one of the most compelling things for me when I became a Methodist however long ago that was, the fact that, that we don't have to check our brains at the sanctuary door when we walk in. In fact, it's expected that we do not check our brains at the door. We believe that our intellect is God-given and that we are thus supposed to use it when we interpret Scripture, when we think through our faith, when we make the faith our own. Finally, having been revealed in Scripture and illumined by tradition and tested by reason, we believe that our theology is uh, vivified, is the word that's used in the discipline, which is to say made alive in our experience. We have to, at the end of the day, make the faith our own. 
And we call these our four sources and criteria for theological reflection, scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. They make for this uh, rich and nuanced and thoughtful way of living out our faith. Scripture is our starting point, to be sure, and we believe that God has equipped us in numerous ways to read it and engage with it and uh, interpret it, to discern whatever passage we're reading, the importance of that passage in our faith, and to decide how any particular text that we're reading is relevant for our relationship with God and our relationships with each other. So, with all that by way of introduction, we're going to turn to our first passage for this series. It comes from the earliest chapters of our very earliest book. Uh, We chose this particular translation earlier this week. This text is a little challenging, and um, various translations make it a little more challenging. I really like this version. Uh, this study Bible was given to me by a, a friend in our Bible study. It's the Jewish uh, study Bible. And we, of course, made that decision before what happened yesterday in Colleyville. And I think that it's a, a providential reminder of our common heritage with our Jewish brothers and sisters. This is a publication of the uh, Jewish Publication Society. This is Genesis chapter 1, or sorry, chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. For reasons that will probably become clear, this never comes up in the lectionary. (laughs) This has never been a recommended text in in, uh, worship, but uh, we'll see what we can do with it. When men began to increase on earth and daughters were born to them, the divine beings saw how beautiful the daughters of men were and took wives from among those that pleased them. The Lord said, My breath shall not abide in man forever, since he too is flesh. Let the days always uh, allowed to him be 120 years. It was then, and later too, that the Nephilim appeared on earth, when the divine beings cohabited with the daughters of men who bore them offspring. They were the heroes of old, the men of renown. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So I've taught Genesis a few times now, and every time I get to those verses in Genesis, um, I try to read them real fast and get on to the flood <laughs> so that nobody asks me a bunch of questions about it. Um, it's an unusual text. I mean, we would read it and say, I'm, I'm sorry, what? As a faithful Christian, Uh, Do I have to believe that there was a time when angels had children with humans Uh, and that the consequence of that was that the human lifespan would be no longer than 120 years? I mean, that's what the the text says, and it's in the Bible. Uh, Do I have to literally believe that? Well, when you consult the commentaries on this passage, here's what you find out. including this commentary in this Jewish study Bible, you find out that these uh, verses were a fragment of a common myth in the ancient Near East, a common myth about how some divine beings rebelled against divine authority and uh, in doing so blurred the lines between the divine and the human. And the commentaries make the point that in the context of the book of Genesis, especially these early uh, chapters of Genesis, this passage 
serves actually a couple of different functions. First, it explains the reduced lifespans of humans compared to Genesis 5, where we get a genealogy that says some people live to be centuries and centuries and centuries old. That's obviously not our experience. And so one thing that this, this text does is to explain why that is. And then second, and probably more important, uh, it serves as an introduction to the flood narrative, which begins immediately following that flood narrative in which God decides that the state of the world is so bad that God wants a do-over. This passage is further evidence after the story of Cain and Abel, which comes after the story of the fall, that things have gotten out of hand. Now, in terms of literary analysis of the early chapters of Genesis, that's the way these verses function in the flow of the text. That's the the scholarly literary analysis of this rather unsettling story. So uh, does our faith require that we have to believe that that literally happened? Well, I mean, the answer, of course, is that it actually depends on which Christian tradition you call home. Uh, Different Christian traditions read the Bible in different ways. Y'all know this. Uh, I think of it as a spectrum, and a spectrum may not be the the perfect uh, analogy, but it's the one that helps me. And at one end of the spectrum are those who believe that the Bible is to be read literally, that it is the the inerrant word of God, and that that it is the only source of faith. I'm guessing some of us came from traditions like that, If not, I'm guessing all of us know people who are in traditions like that, people that we know and love, faithful people. Um, So that's one end of the spectrum. At the other end of the spectrum are those who read the Bible as kind of an an interesting and important cultural artifact that uh, reflects the beliefs of the people who wrote it. On this end of the spectrum, uh, people would argue that the Bible is important for historical perspective and historical context, um, and that it's to be understood primarily as metaphor and full of quaint legend. That's obviously the opposite end of the spectrum from a literalist. And then, of course, there's this wide range of understanding and interpretation between the two ends of the spectrum. Now, needless to say, Methodist theology is at neither end of the spectrum. As with most subjects, we're somewhere in the middle. (laughs) And as with all subjects, and I do mean all subjects, not all Methodists are in the same place on that spectrum. We don't all agree, right? So, Scripture is foundational for our faith, but we're not literalists. Uh, We think historical context is vitally important But for us, the Bible is much more than uh, just an interesting cultural artifact. So if we're not at the ends of the spectrum, where are we? What what do we think the Bible is? This is a really important point. In our United Methodist Articles of Religion, we are clear, we state this very clearly, that the Bible contains all things necessary to salvation, or all things necessary for salvation. For us, that's what the Bible is is authoritative for. It tells us the story of our salvation history. It gives us the theology of the Messiah. It makes clear uh, the teachings of Christ and the ways in which those teachings and our faith in him uh, challenges us and transforms us and, of course, saves us. Everything we need to know in order to be in a right relationship with God, which is the 
the, another way to think of that churchy word, salvation. Everything we need to know is contained in the pages of our most important book. But, and here's the point, that's not the same thing as saying that everything in that book is required for our relationship with God. To say that this book contains all things necessary for salvation is not the same thing as saying literally everything in here is required for that relationship with God. As Methodists, we have tradition and reason and experience to help guide our reading of this foundation of our faith, to discern what is, on the one hand, central to our relationship with God, and then what is, for example, uh, a fragment of a common myth in the ancient Near East that serves a specific literary function in the early chapters of the Bible. Another way to think of this is that we believe that this is a particular kind of book, and it was written for a very specific reason. As we'll discover in the coming weeks, some of the passages that we find troubling or challenging or quirky or downright weird actually have a theological significance that we, we might miss on an initial reading. Some are evidence that there's a fair amount of humanity in this book, in addition to containing all things necessary for salvation. Some are intended to stretch us and to call us to a higher expectation of discipleship. That's all in the coming weeks we're going to get there. While some, like our passage this morning, are uh, fascinating stories from another place and time that do not fall into the category of all things necessary for salvation. Chances are you know the name Harper Lee. Uh, she's one of the most famous authors in American history, but until almost the very end of her 89 years on earth, she had only published one novel. I know this. It was, of course, one of the great novels in American literature, To Kill a Mockingbird. It won the, the Pulitzer Prize in 1961. Almost 50 years later, in 2007, President Bush awarded her the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Three years later, President Obama presented her the, the National Medal of Arts. And it was after all of that, <laughs> believe it or not, that she published her second book in 2014, Go Set a Watchman. Lee was a, a lifelong Methodist. And she was an active member of her church in Alabama. She was deeply committed to her faith. If you've read the book, you may remember that the opening pages of To Kill a Mockingbird include references to John Wesley and the Methodism. And as it turns out, one of our greatest authors who knew something about the power and importance of the written word had a very Methodist way of thinking about the foundation of our faith. She said, uh, the book to read is not the one which thinks for you, but the one which makes you think. No book in the world equals the Bible for that. Friends, as we continue through this series, we're going to be thinking through the most important things together. Thanks be to God for a, a faith tradition that encourages us to do just that. Amen.